I want to start with a question, um, a question that was asked me earlier this week. Um, if you are to think back on the week just gone, uh, those of you here who call yourselves a Christian, um, has your union with Christ impacted the way that you have behaved? If I were to have um, tapped your phone conversations, which is illegal, I know, we don't, we don't do that. We're not one of those churches, just in case anyone <laughs> is concerned in any way. Do not, do not uh, condone that behaviour. But if I'd listened in on conversations this week, or if I had been a fly on the wall and observed the way that you have been with your friends and family or work colleagues or people at college... Um, would your words or actions or behaviours have come out of a place of knowing Jesus and believing in a personal God who is with you? What would it look like if I were to observe someone whose life is birthed out of a place of a union with Christ? Um, someone asked me that question earlier this week, and um, you know I've been a believer now for 15 years I think and um, it still sent a little shudder through through me when I thought about it and I didn't I didn't have to think back too far really when I think I'm not there's moments in my week when I probably probably didn't live out of a place of knowing Jesus as a as a personal saviour I probably can only think back a few hours when this morning you know just feeling tired and woken up by the boys and you know, if those of you that don't have kids, they want to, they get going straight away. So, you know, eyes open and we don't want to start drawing or making something at six o'clock. You know, there's no like warm up period at all. And, um, you know, I've got a tendency to not, not adjust to that abruptness of awakening too quickly. I mean, I used to think I was a morning person until I had children. Um, and so I don't have to think back too far when I think maybe I was probably a bit short with my kids or a bit angry and I, Maybe that wasn't a great representation of my time or my, my relationship with Jesus. Or maybe, you know, I, I've got a bit short-tempered with people in the week or, you know, certainly not thought the best of them uh, or, or hoped the best for them. Uh, and it, it wouldn't, wouldn't take too long. Today and for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, a three-part series, a trilogy no less, um, of uh, from from the book of Galatians, looking at fruit of the spirit, um, and the book of Galatians is written by the apostle Paul, and he's writing to a group of churches in the area of Galatia, which is now modern day Turkey. And uh, the scenario is that, well, we believe that Paul or someone has gone in ahead and preached the gospel, and churches have been formed in Galatia. Um, but Paul has heard that there has been some. Um, teaching which has come out of a place of legalism, um, potentially from Jewish Christians who have gone into the churches, who've heard the gospel of Christ, but people have since gone in and started bringing messages and preaching that they should be adhering to some of the Old Testament principles. Um, and in the church of Galatia, they're, they're particularly looking at uh, circumcision. And Paul has heard about this, that there's some teaching that's gone on that is drawing them away from the gospel of grace that he preached to the churches and more towards a legalistic um, tradition. And Paul is outraged uh, in his letters. He uses very, very strong language throughout the letter and he's 
very concerned at what's gone on in the church. Um, at one point, he, he starts off chapter 3 just saying, you foolish Galatians. You know, he doesn't mince with his words at all when he's talking to them. Um, and Paul is particularly defending the doctrine of justification in this letter, um, which for those of you that... Uh, don't know that term, it's essentially believing that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and not by what we do ourselves. We can't, we can't make ourselves better. We can't save ourselves by being good. We are saved through faith in the only one who fulfilled all of the law and testament, and that is Jesus Christ, and we are saved through faith in him. And um, Paul is coming in to remind the Galatians of this gospel of grace and, and not to fall back into trying to... Um, earn their salvation and not to have it to, to work up um, their, their, I guess, a sense of being good enough. And that, that, that started to slip into the church um, and is very strongly urging there. So we're going to pick up in chapter 5 here, and I'll read this with you. But that's the context. Paul is going into a church who've started falling into a bit of legalism, and he wants to speak into that and remind them of the gospel of grace to which they've been called. So we're going to read chapter 5 together. For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For though the Spirit for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I told you I was not messing with words here. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You saw the picture um, earlier of my boys. My youngest one, Felix, who's nearly two now, has just got to the age where he started to um, acknowledge that there is a right and a wrong in, in doing stuff. And he's starting to test the boundaries a little bit where I'm sure you've seen it with kids where he'll go to do something that he knows he shouldn't do and he'll just turn and look at you to see what you're going to do about it. And, he'll, and, and sometimes if I'm saying to him, Felix, don't do that. Don't do that. Like, he's quite keen on trying to cook himself at the moment. Like, turn sausages himself. (laughs) Which, obviously, I don't want him to do. But if I say to Felix, don't do that, he looks at me and just smiles. And then just, you know, just has a go, just to see what happens. And um, he's he's now started to find, in our living room, we've got this chair that he can fit behind and totally hide. And um, if he does something wrong, his instant reaction, he he just glances at me. And he he knows I'm about to tell him he's done something wrong. And he runs and hides behind the chair and dunks right down. Uh, so Felix come out from behind the chair and his little head just like comes up like this. <laughs> and he knows exactly that he's done something wrong. Um, before I was a Christian, um, I, was, I was involved in many things, uh, did many things. Um, one of which, a lot of people don't know, is that I was a bank robber. And I'm, I'm not lying. Um, I uh, spent a year in Australia... Uh, before I went to university, and um, it was, you know, I kind of worked and travelled at the same time, and money was quite short. And we, at the end of the part of travelling uh, for Australia, we'd kind of, I was travelling with a friend, and we'd saved all our money to then go off to. We travelled around the South Pacific, and um, we weren't going to work there, so we'd saved quite a bit of money for that, and we'd worked doing all sorts of things. And um, it came to the last day of, uh, when we were going to leave the country, and um, I went into the bank, and at the time then, this was like 20 years ago now, you, I took out my money and they wrote travellers' checks. I don't even know if you can do those things now, but they wrote uh, travellers' checks out, which you could exchange for currency in any destination. And um, they wrote it out for the... Oh, sorry, I took everything out of my bank account, and uh, they wrote the travellers' checks, and then I went outside and I'd left a few dollars in the account just for some for some lunch, and I put my card in, and um, the full balance was still there. And, um, you know, and we're talking a few thousand dollars, and um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And um, I had a moment then when I thought, what do I do in this moment? Because I have travellers' checks here, which, which cannot, you know, they're, they're mine now, it's, they're as good as cash. And um, equally... I've got the balance appears to still be there in my bank account, and um, I I withdrew the whole amount. And I thought, wow, it's brilliant! What an opportunity! <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to take it out, and I had double the money. And then I said to my friend, "You never guess what happened? <laughs> never guess what I worked out? You could do, um, you could rob a bank really cleverly." And um, they went and did it as well. And um, so off we went on our merry way and left Australia with double our money having robbed the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And, um, you know, had a great time. And (laughs) at the time, I kind of thought, well, you know what? Banks have so much money, it really does not matter. Who is going to miss it? Because it's no one's money. It's like just in the ether. It's just appeared. It's still in my account. It's kind of mine, really. It's just multiplied. (laughs) And and so... (laughs) So I, yeah, we went off and had a great time. And then when I came back from university is when I became a Christian. And um, I was, you know, this came up in conversation at some point with a friend who was a believer. And I started to 
recognise that perhaps, you know, just because it, just because I thought it was good and it didn't hurt anyone doesn't necessarily mean that it was the right thing to have done in the circumstance. Even though we really could have done with the money and it was very helpful, um, probably wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and just so that you know, I, I did, not, not too long ago actually, I did contact the bank. So I was, I was so concerned because I thought it was about 10 years until the point where I, I, I thought, I, I learned that I, as, a, as a believer now, I've got an opportunity to kind of make up for some of the mistakes. And, you know, not, not everything I've ever done along in my life, but for this particular one, I thought I've got to do something about this because it's criminal. And um, I contacted the bank and said to them, I said to them, I'm a Christian now. And um, 15 years ago, I robbed your bank. <laughs> It was the most surrealist telephone conversation I've had. Um, And I said, and my friend robbed the bank, but it was my fault as well. And I said, um, you know, I've still got my bank account details, and I'm really sorry, and I will pay it back. I was thinking, 10 years of interest, can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. I was, was, yeah, I said to Natalie, my wife, I said, I was really dreading it, because I thought... We just couldn't afford it. It was a, like a few thousand dollars, and I thought, I just, I don't know what that could be now. Who knows? Anyway, so I called them in the end. I was putting it off for ages, and, and they just, they, you know, they just thought, well, first I think they just thought I was a scam caller. They just thought I was a bit weird. Um, but I said, no, really, I had this bank account, and this is what I did. I'm really sorry. And it's just someone in a call centre, you know. They're like, <laughs> weirdo. And, um, and uh, so they, they asked me to put it in writing to the bank, which I did. And, um, a few days later, I got an email back going, do you know what, it was ages ago, don't worry, we're prepared to write it off, uh, you're fine. Which was very pleasing, I have to say. Um, however, um, the point of telling you these two stories is that this kind of view in the world is quite popularised, that if it, if it doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't do any harm, then just do it. Go, you know, just do it. Go ahead with it. You know, if it makes you feel good, uh, then surely there's nothing wrong with it. And um, even if you're not... You know, if you're here and you don't count yourself a Christian, you know some of that internal um, fight sometimes mentally between right and wrong. You probably call it your conscience. And like with my son Felix, you know, he's got an, in, an innate sense of right and wrong, and he knows when he's doing something that's not right. And um, Paul in the letter in Galatians, uh, it will come back, don't worry. Paul in the letter of Galatians is really speaking into a dynamic here in a very graphic way of a, of a battle that's going on. And he, he is talking about not a battle of conscience, but a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And he's urging the Galatians to see that what's going on here is not, it's not just the fact that they've turned away um, from the original teaching, but they're falling into and works of the flesh. They're falling into something which is is totally opposed to the teaching which they learn and totally goes against the gospel of Christ who set them free. Um, verse 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he's trying to give the Galatians an insight into what's going on here. It's not just simply you've erred in your teaching, but you're falling into something here, and you don't recognise the battle that's, that's ensuing. And um, I was thinking, you know, what would be a good analogy to demonstrate what Paul's obviously got a very strong conviction he's trying to talk to the Galatians about and um, I, you know I suddenly thought well duh Paul's got the analogy because his analogy is one of war and um, Paul um, throughout this letter and indeed through a lot of his letters used quite military terminology and certainly when he starts to describe this battle between the flesh and the spirit he uses kind of military terms and he wants the church to see that it's not just a simply a matter of well something's a good something's a not so good but what 
what they're starting to fall into is, is, is real battle territory and that there's a war for their salvation, there's a, there's a war for their spirit. And um, he wants them to see the gravity of this situation. The word that Paul uses where he says that the spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other, the, word, the Greek word is anti, anti-kamai, which is where we get our word anti from. Um, and it literally means two things set against each other, like a, rep- a repelling thing. So if you've ever had like two magnets where you're of opposing... What's the word? Poles? Poles? I'm looking to the end, my, my PhD fellow elder here. Poles, is that right? Yeah. Not that that, that if you, that was all you had to know for a PhD, I'd be worried. But that, uh, um, yeah, when you've got two magnets that are opposing each other and you're trying to push them together. And that's the kind of dyna- the dynamic that Paul's using when he's talking about the spirit and the flesh. They're opposed to each other. They're not just different. They're actually poles apart and they push. They, there's an active dynamic of pushing against each other and, and repelling. That's, the, that's what the fullness of the word means. And um, when we live our lives with Christ, Christ comes to indwell us by his spirit and starts to transform us from the inside out into Christ's likeness. That's what, that's what he does. And um, that's a, a process called sanctification where he dwells in us and over time Christ transforms us into his likeness, praise God. And um, Paul's saying that, that within this dynamic there's a real struggle because there's something of the flesh that is opposing this transformation that Christ is working in your lives. Um, and, you know, when, when I was an early Christian and I heard about this, the dynamic between the spirit and the flesh, I kind of thought it was some strange skin disease or something, you know, like where the flesh is, like, repelling against my body. Or like, but what, what Paul is referring to is, when he talks about the flesh is our old nature. So before coming to Christ, the nature that we were born into, that's what he's referring to as the flesh. The old wills and desires and motivations of your unsanctified heart versus what he calls the spirit, which is the new nature that, that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes about through new birth. And so Paul is saying that these, these two dynamics are going on within the believers, and he's, he's speaking to the church and saying, you've got to see what's going on here. And, and indeed, I say to you, if you're a believer here, you've got to recognise the dynamic that goes on within a believer, that there's this internal war that's raging between spirit and flesh, and these two things vehemently oppose each other. Christian life is, is about doing sometimes what you don't want to do, and um, Paul, early one in Romans 7, kind of laments about this. He says, for I do not do what I want to do, but, the, but I do the very thing that I hate. And he recognises that, you know, he's like almost looking at himself thinking, why am I doing this? Why do I do the very things that I'm trying not to do? And this is what kind of Paul's speaking to the church here. And often I don't think there's enough discernment in the church to recognise that this is what goes on. And it, because we've been brought up in or we're surrounded by a world that, that doesn't, you know, it's very countercultural to say, well, actually, what, what you might be feeling to do might, might not be the right thing. Don't, just because it feels good does not mean that it is the right thing to do. And that, that goes against a lot of what messages you'll hear coming at you from TV and media and from friends and from family and from well-meaning people around you um, who don't have an understanding about this struggle. I, I read one commentary and they described it as... Um, the remainders of sin and the beginnings of grace, you know, working together. For the born-again believer, that the reality of the warring desires on a daily basis needs to be acknowledged and engaged with. Um, and it sounds quite 
terrible, actually. You think, well, what, that, that sounds like really exhausting. But Paul goes on to bring hope into this, and I will too. So what do we do about this? In verse 24, if I go back again. Verse 24. Sorry, the numbers aren't on there, so that's not going to help you at all. Verse 24, Paul says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul is calling these guys, firstly, to recognise that within them as a Christian, there's this warring desires that goes on. And secondly, that he's imploring them to engage with it, saying that you need to, there's some things here that you need to fight with. Um, and again, very countercultural, not to go, not to just go with your feelings and your impulses, but actually to be discerning in the spirit and say, God, is this is this the right thing to do in this circumstance? For example, you know, there's times when you might, you know, in your week be thinking, that person really annoys me, and they're just getting under my skin, and I just see them, and they're just, I, I get tense, and everything within you just wants to avoid them or to speak ill of them. And yet Christ would say, love your enemies. And that's, that's hold on, there's something, there, there's two things repelling each other. That's really strange. Or you, you know, you've some, maybe you have an overwhelming desire to sin sexually, whether that's physically or in your mind, and you, the temptation is so great. And yet Christ calls you to a different way, to a higher way. It may be that you're in a conversation with people and you, you can see the direction of the conversation is just going down and down, and it's not edifying, it's not building up, and it's not speaking life. And the temptation would be to join in, because it might make you feel better, you don't like them either. And yet, we know that the tongue has the power of life and death, and we're told to edify and to build up and to speak well. How do we crucify the flesh? That's what Paul is saying to these guys, recognise the dynamic, and two crucify the flesh and he uses these words knowing that the believers around him would identify with the crucifixion very strongly as a very graphic and physical image and not one that they can take lightly and he uses these words very carefully to say you've got to crucify the flesh here there's something that we need to engage with the word crucifixion literally means to extinguish to take life from to put out and it would have conjured up very strong meaning for them. So do we have this attitude towards our own sin? Do we think, do we recognise something as not, not of God? Do we think this is actually something from the flesh? This is something which is self-centred, it's pride-driven? And do we in the moment think, no, I'm going I'm to crucify that, I'm going to choose Christ's way? Do we have that attitude? As a Christian, we have to learn how to put to death the desires of the flesh, and fuel the fire of the good ones, both in equal measure. And it's normal to feel this struggle. Second aspect I want to um, look at that Paul is talking about is our union with Christ. And this is where he starts to speak into, well, how how on earth can we start to walk this dynamic? Um, I want to read from, um, skip ahead here, from Romans 6, 3 to 7, I mentioned before he speaks a bit about this warring that's going on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul's pretty um, categorical here in his declaration and in his clarity that those who have, through baptism, died to their old self, died to sin, are alive in Christ and free from the reign of sin. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this, the, the, the verb tense here is, is present. So he's not talking about future hope, although we do know that the fullness of um, knowing freedom will be in, you know, in eternity with Christ. He, he is talking in the present tense here that as a born-again believer, by, through faith, accepting Jesus Christ, there is a freedom to be known here. The life I now live in the flesh... Again, living the present. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Um, Paul talks about here that if you truly, truly, and those of you here today, if you truly believe that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that because he has overcome, because he has victory over sin and death, that in him, in our union with him, we too are set free. If we truly believe that, then there's a victory to walk in here. And um, Paul is really urging the believers in the Church of Galatia to grasp this. And why he gets so frustrated really with them, because they're going back to their old life, they're going back to submitting to fleshy desires. He, He speaks of them biting and devouring one another, um, and getting caught up in legalism and pride. And he's thinking, why, you have been set free from all of that. Why are you going back to it? Why are you trying to start to puff your chest up and prove yourself? Why are you looking like a Pharisee instead of one who knows the freedom that Christ has bought? Why are you doing this? It's insane. And uh, yet, easy to fall into. And I can recognise that myself. That there's times when you start, you forget that it's not about you that it's all about Jesus, that we are saved by faith. It's a gospel of grace, and, and nothing that I can have or ever will do puts me in a position where I've earned the right to be in heaven or where I've earned the right to know Jesus. But we are partakers in this victory. We're no longer under the law of sin and have the Spirit of God living in us. And this is why Paul is saying you have been called to freedom And the interesting thing where he says you've been called to freedom, if we go back to um, Galatians, let me get this back. Uh, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that's a a sentence I just want to pull out a little bit, because Paul is essentially saying here, yes, you've been set free but this freedom doesn't entitle you to then do what you want to do it doesn't entitle you to give an opportunity to the flesh i.e just go with whatever you feel like but it's a freedom that allows you remember those poles apart spirit and flesh this is what this is an example he's saying instead of gratifying the flesh do the opposite in the spirit which is to love one another and then the freedom that christ has purchased for you is to choose instead through the Spirit, to love your brothers and sisters rather than biting and devouring one another, which is what he's accusing them of doing. Christian freedom permits this living by the Spirit. And I want to read um, a quick quote here from John Stott when he's just talking about this freedom that Paul is referring to. 
says, call to freedom, this is what it means to be a Christian, and it is tragic that the average man does not know it. The popular image of Christianity today is not a freedom at all, but a cruel and cramping bondage. But Christianity is not a bondage, it is a call of grace to freedom, nor is it the exceptional privilege of a few believers, but rather the common inheritance of all Christians without distinction. Every single Christian brother and sister has been called by God and called to freedom. As a Christian, we have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. How many of you here live in a full understanding of that freedom that's purchased? Freedom to, in, instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh, to instead say, no, you know, you know what, I'm going to love my brothers and sisters because that's the freedom that Christ has purchased me. It kind of sounds a bit opposed, you know, freedom and yet I'm going to do this. And, and um, I want to read a little bit more that, from John Stott that speaks to this. He says, there are many kinds of slaves in our society today, they proclaim their freedom with a loud voice. They speak of free love and a free life, but in reality they are slaves to their own appetites to which they give free reign, simply because they cannot control them. Christian freedom is very different. Far from having liberty to indulge the flesh, Christians are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. That is to say, we have totally rejected the claim of the sinful nature to rule over us. So Paul is trying to get these guys to see that to walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased is not a passive thing. To crucify the crash, the flesh... <laughs> I love the crash! <laughs> My son's in it. <laughs> to crucify the flesh... Um, is something that Paul is there, Dave Smith, you've got to stop there. It's something that he is asking them to engage with. Uh, and you've got to get the flesh, the flesh, and remember the flesh is not the flesh, it's the old self, the old nature, the old ways. It cannot be redeemed, it will not be redeemed. It will only stop desiring evil things when the body is glorified. And until that point, we are called to be united in Christ and to, through the Spirit to crucify the flesh, to pick up our cross daily. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? I'll get, I'll get there in the end, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, Paul, Paul is interesting because he, um, in a lot of his letters, uses a lot of kind of active, descriptive language, and I, I said often in kind of military terms, where he's, he's, he's trying to get believers to see that it is a gospel of grace, but there's, a, there's an engaging with it. And um, it's not about a passivity where we say, right, we, we're saved by grace, therefore we'll just let Christ do all the work and we don't have to do anything. But neither is it what he's, what he's speaking to in this church, where he's saying you, you can't stir it up yourself, you cannot, you cannot through your works be saved. But instead, you've got to recognise that you're saved entirely by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ, and yet there's something here that you can engage with. And uh, he uses a lot of words that probably have quite negative connotations for us, like striving and fighting. And, um, and yet, you know, Paul gets grace, and yet he's still saying to this church, come on, grasp this truth. And um, I remember I was kind of thinking about this myself a few years back, you know, what, how... Christ has set me free, and yet, what, how, how do I engage with that truth? You know, to what to what extent? And um, you know, at the time, I think I was really struggling with 
uh, giving o- over to you know sexual immorality and temptation. And, and um, God just really spoke to me about about what this fighting looks like. And um, I like um, exercising and going to the gym. And he just said to me, I felt God really clearly speak to me and said, you know, you know when you're in the gym and you love to really push yourself till, till it hurts, until you, you really can't do anything else, and that you, you go, you're very focused and determined and you know, disciplined in doing that. Well, do you do that in terms of wanting to crucify this desire of the flesh? And I, it really, like, struck me. And I kind of thought, do you know what? I put, I, I put far more effort, and, and it's not that I'm stressing, I'm stressing, it's not about works, but in terms of me saying, if this is true, if Christ has set me free from sin, am I going to hold on to that with all that I have and trust in it and believe in it and stand on it as truth? Or am I just going to let it, you know, float up here and I'll, you know, is it going to, how is it going to help me? I've got, to, I've got to seize it for myself and lay hold of it with all that Christ laid hold of me, Paul says. And um, I suddenly thought, do you know what? I, I do. I put, I put far more effort into focus, determination of exercise than I do in the Word of God. And that is a shameful thing. Paul says in Timothy, you know, bodily training is of some value, but rather train yourself from godliness, because that's going to be for eternity. And um, I thought, it just gave me a picture. I thought, hold on, do I, do I hold on to God that tightly like I would push myself sometimes in the gym? And, and for me, that was a really graphic picture. Um, Paul in this passage gives them a few words which, which is kind of speaking to how, how do we go about doing this? We crucify the flesh, but also he's saying it's not just that, but it comes through the Spirit. And this is what this is all about, fruits of the Spirit. These, these things only come through being knitted in and united with Christ. And he talks about, in verse 16, walking with the Spirit. And um, the word here to walk with the Spirit is to follow as a companion. It's like you see someone a bit far off and you're literally just like, wherever they go, you're following them. That's what, that's what the word means. And Paul is saying to them, you know, walk by the Spirit. And, and uh, it's one of these terms that you think, well, what does that mean? Well, he's literally saying, follow exactly what the Spirit is doing. Look at what Jesus did and do as he did. And Paul even says, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow, and walking isn't, isn't, and it sounds obvious, but it's not passive. Walking with the Spirit is literally keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, saying, where are you going? What should I do in this situation? How can I represent Jesus in this scenario? It's a very active thing. He also talks about, um, as well as walking by the Spirit, he talks about being led by the Spirit in verse 18, and living by the Spirit in verse 25. So it's kind of this... Um, very alive relationship with the Holy Spirit where we're actively listening for his help. Jesus, you know, when he was talking about the Holy Spirit, said, I'm going to send you a helper, a guide, um, someone who will bring the words, life, and, um, you know, speak wisdom to you. And, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is there. And Paul's encouraging us to look. Walking by the Spirit literally means to to keep focused, to, to keep an eye on what the Holy Spirit's doing, to ask the Holy Spirit for help. In verse 25, he uses another military term. He talks about keeping in step with the Spirit. And it was literally, in, uh, again, for these guys, they would have been very familiar um, with the Greek army. And, um, and so he's literally talking about um, when armies are marching in formation and that, you know, that keeping in line is a, is, a, is a thing that has to be done. It's a discipline. And he's talking in that kind of terminology when he's talking about keeping in step with the Spirit, keeping in line with what God is doing. And when you're looking at this, battle between the flesh and the spirit, we're called to keep in line with the spirit and don't let your eyes, you know, just waver and go to the left and to the right. Don't get sloppy and lax about this. The more we learn to walk by the spirit, the more 
Our desire for Jesus is nurtured, and the desires of the flesh become less. So Christian liberty that Paul's talking about exercises itself in in self-control, in walking in the Spirit, in choosing to love our neighbour instead of biting and devouring them, not literally, um, and in loving God. Now, uh, how can we possibly do all that? Well, the answer is, we can't at all by ourselves. And um, that's why Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit, because he's saying all of these things need to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And our enjoyment of freedom depends on the Holy Spirit, depends on our walking with him daily. Yes, it is the truth that Christ set us free, but the continuing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit keeps us in that freedom, keeps us from stepping back into a place of captivity, into a place of self-centeredness and pride, or into into passivity. The third thing that I want to talk about from this that um, Paul's talking about is um, this idea of the fruits fruit of the Spirit. And essentially Paul is saying here that if you are to, as, he's, as I've just talked about, if you are to walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, walk in the truth that Christ has set you free and you're no longer enslaved to sin and that you can live by the Spirit. He's saying this is what it looks like. You know, instead of, he's kind of observing the church and saying, look, look, look what's going on here. This is, this, is not, this is not a people who are trusting in Jesus and walking by the Spirit. And he's, he gives them, uh, at the end of Galatians here, a very clear picture in terms of what does a life in the Spirit look, for, look like. And I'll just read this last part again, where he's li- listing it. Um, but I say, so he's kind of saying, this is, this is a pi- picture of what, what it should look like, where he's first list what it's not, and then what it, what it is. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, if you will not gratify the desires of the f- and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul's kind of for want of a better word, solution, if that's the right thing, is that the way to not gratify the flesh is to walk by the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and, su- and things like these. I mean, he's got a, quite a comprehensive list there, but he kind of adds on such like these because it's kind of like an etc, etc kind of thing. And I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul is exhorting the church here to say, look, which, which one do you want to look like here? There's like, the top, top one is the works of the flesh. And the second is the fruit of the Spirit. And again, the choice of words is quite interesting here. Works coming out of something that you're doing yourself, whereas the fruit comes from being joined to something else. The fruit comes out of the root. Um, Another little story from Australia, if I can skip back ahead. Um, When I was there, I uh, had a job... Um, I had a job, another job, before I was a bank robber, um, fruit picking, 
And, um, and so I was quite pleased when I started looking at this passage. I thought, fruit of the Spirit. I know a lot about fruit. I like to think I'm a bit of a fruit expert because I spent a long time looking at fruit. And um, I spent months on a massive, massive plantation in Australia. It was so big. It was one of these farms in Australia. It was so big that they needed to fly from one end to the other because you could not travel any other way. It was like they're just gigantic. And he was... Um, the farm I worked on was Australia's biggest plum farm. And... Um, I, it was really fascinating, and I worked on this farm for quite a few months, and um, the guy there kind of took me under his wing, his name was Edgar, and um, he used to love teaching me about how he grew the plums, and he'd developed his own, um, not brand, but type of plum, obviously I didn't pick up too much, uh, he, he developed his own fruit that, that um, he'd, he'd grown through grafting in different um, <laughs> breeds. <laughs> I didn't go into horticulture. Um, and uh, it, my job uh, of many was, I did all different things with him, but at, uh, part of it was um, fruit picking, and he had this automated platform, which apparently was the only one in Australia at the time. It was this massive thing, like about as big as this floor space here, and it went up and down and left and right, and you could go up and down all the rows of the trees, and it just slowly, slowly moved the whole time, and the idea was that you pick the fr- fruit at the right colour. And so um, we had this whole thing about this is what the fruit looks like at the time of picking because to get it into supermarkets and stuff, they had to pick it at just the right time so that it could continue ripening so that when it hit the shelves it was ripe but not too ripe. And uh, so it was really specific in terms of the colour that we had to pick. And, um, we, you know, so we had uh, this long thing of all of these colours and we're like, yeah, yeah, good. And then when we were in the trees, the trees, you know, we had to work, make sure that we just picked these. Now, it sounds quite straightforward if you weren't colourblind, uh, which I am. And, um, and so <laughs> I didn't tell Edgar this. I would, clearly, you know, I had a few flaws before. Not that I've got many now, but had even more then. Um, and I didn't tell Edgar that I was colourblind. And, and, you know, obviously being a fruit picker and being colourblind does not doesn't work and um because you know shades of plum were nothing to me it's, just, it's, it's either a plum or it's not and it, and uh, i'm colorblind in red and green and the trees are green and the plums were kind of red and so i i just had no chance at all um i hadn't got a clue what i was picking i couldn't even see them half the time and um i was just grabbing at all sorts of things <laughs> i haven't got a clue and at the end we had these vast like buckets of fruit and um, he'd look through and like sift out all the ones that were wrong colour, and and um, you know it was like mm, there's, there seems to be quite a few here that are just the wrong wrong shade, and he, it, the whole group would always be told off all the time, and it was probably just me like putting all these wrong fruit in the entire time, but. Um, I, but I learned a lot about fruit at the time. So I, for this last part, looking at fruit of the spirit, I wanted to use some of my wonderful knowledge of fruit to help draw out. Because you've got to remember when Paul, and indeed Jesus, they used a lot of horticultural analogies um, because it would have meant an awful lot to people at the time because they were in agricultural society. And so with my uh, expertise in fruit, I wanted to help you understand a bit around the fruit of the spirit here. Um, so first thing, some things I learned about fruits. Um, well, I learned that plums are red, <laughs> a shade of. Uh, first of all, uh, this isn't too groundbreaking, fruit grows over time as a result of being joined to something, and um, that might sound obvious, but Paul is saying here to the church, look, 
if you want to be led by the Spirit, if you want to walk in the Spirit, and you want to look like the second list of things, it's only going to come through being joined to the person of Jesus. And, it, you know, it, it sounds straightforward, but you kind of think, okay, to what extent would I say that I am seeking to actively be joined to Christ, to be, you know, in my days, throughout my weeks, so that my life looks like list B instead of list A? Um, how much am I actively seeking Christ and spending time with him? And, you know, that passage that says that when we're beholding Christ, we're transformed into his glory. And that beholding is like, you can't behold something unless you're spending time with Jesus, and unless you're reading his word and praying and talking to him. You know, that's where the transformation takes place. And so Paul is saying here, it's fruit of the Spirit. And you've got to get this, that the fruit comes from being joined to the vine. Uh, secondly, that fruit requires nurturing and watering, and so um, as believers, you know, until Christ returns, there's going to be stuff that we can engage with here and think, you know, we, we've got a responsibility in a way to to feed ourselves, to nurture this treasure that's being granted to us, to follow Jesus, to seek him, to place him as priority in our time and our diaries. Um, thirdly, fruits reveal the nature of the tree. Now, it's quite obvious. You look at a plum and you think, well, it comes from a plum tree. Um, but that, that's exactly the point of the fruits of the Spirit, in that the point of the fruit is that it reflects the tree and it reflects Jesus. And um, this list that he described there, love, joy, peace, patience, it's not just kind of a shopping list of aren't these good things to have but it is describing the person of Jesus this is who Jesus is um, not only who he is but it's describing who Jesus is in terms of his relationship with us as well loving, patient, kind, long-suffering um, and so Paul is using this analogy of fruit because he's saying that if people look upon your life and they see these things then it's speaking about the vine, speaking about the true vine, Jesus, and your life reflects him. And that's how Jesus has chosen to represent himself in the world, in part through people, for people to look upon you and say, do you know what, I see something of Jesus in you, that your fruit tells me something about the tree. That's what he's called us to do. Fourthly, um, fruit does not last long, apart from the fruit tree. Um, and in fact, it does not just doesn't just last long, but fruit when it's been left goes pretty rancid and disgusting um, some of my friends when I was in Australia thought it was a great game to put a tray of fruit under my bunk bed and leave it, see how long they could leave it before I noticed it was under there and um, I remember just like, it was weeks weeks and it, it was pretty hot and humid um, so it, I just suddenly thought this room is really starting to smell, quite disgusting and um they were just laughing, you know, we were discussing this at the table, and we are thinking, oh, you know, we're washing quite regularly, um, you know, it's a load of boys in, in a room, but we just couldn't work it out, and suddenly they, just, they were just laughing, I'm like, what, what? And they said, you need to look under your bed, and um, this is the fun we get out to, and, and then, uh, yeah, so we looked under the bed, and all I could see was this tray and spilling maggots, just, just literally <laughs> cascading out of it, it was so revolting, and um, it was only, it only been in like a week, but in the heat and stuff, it, like this fruit had just gone so rancid, and yet, you know, I was thinking about this passage, and I thought, you know what, if we, 
If we think, even as believers, that we can get along without Jesus, without being daily and filled by the Holy Spirit, you've got another thing coming. It's going to get rancid and sour and horrible very, very quickly. And you're gonna lie, your life is going to look like the first list and the second list very, very quickly. Um, and so, you know, we need, we need the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's saying to the church. You need to walk daily with the Holy Spirit, pursuing him. Because without him, we can't do any of this. We can't reflect Christ to a fallen world by our own strength. We really can't. And it will be rancid and horrible and full of maggots. Um, but... Seeking uh, fruit, you know, fruit when it's harvested, when it's nurtured, when it's treated, uh, the fruit gets bigger and better each time. And you know, some some of the best fruit comes from some of the most looked after and tended crops. And um, and the same goes for us, I think. You know, over time, Paul's using this again, the analogy of fruit, which kind of hints towards the fact that over time we increasingly become Christ-like and look more like Jesus. And that's the hope. And then lastly. Um, grafting, and with, without wanting to push the horticultural analogy too much, um, Jesus talks about fruits in um, John 17, and he talks about grafting. He talks about the fact that um, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine, dresser, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Um, and Jesus is painting this, again, a picture here that they would have understood, that he's the, he's the plant, and we're like a branch that has been grafted in, and God is the one that's nurturing and keeping and tendering. And when I was on the farm, I saw what grafting looked like when they were trying to develop new types of uh, plums. And they literally, they, they find a plant that has all the, some really good qualities, uh, strong roots, and produces really great fruit. And they literally cut into the branch, insert a, a, another type, or often if they're trying to mix breeds together, they'll take another type of uh, stem of a, a, stick, a stick from another one um, that is good, has, has borne fruit, and they'll put, cut both so that it's kind of the sap and the the insides of the branches are kind of exposed, make a V-shape and literally insert one into the other and then kind of bind it around. And literally the, they, they start interweaving and growing into one another. And the theory is that all the goodness comes out of the main vine, grows through the branch, but takes on some of the characteristics of the branch that's been grafted in and you get this real mix. And I think it's a wonderful picture because you kind of think Jesus, Jesus tells us here that he's the vine um, and it, in this passage, it actually goes on to say that, you know, when, when you're not abiding in Christ, then it just dries up and withers. And that's very true. That's what Paul's saying as well. Unless you're abiding in Christ, this fruit, you know what, it's not going to come. You're just going to dry up and wither. But he's saying when you abide in Christ, then there's fruitfulness. And if, like in the horticultural sense that I saw, when you're grafted in and you're abiding in Jesus, all of what he is comes out through you. And this picture of grafting is really lovely because you kind of think, you know, it's Jesus coming out. But, t- but through you, it's in a, in a way that, you know, it's going to look different for me than it is for you because I'm me and you're you and God's made it all different. And so there's this combination. I'm grafted into Jesus. Jesus is coming through looking like, a bit like Simon and someone else, Lauren, you know, Jesus is... She's grafted into him and it's going to come out looking Lauren-like and so on. And, you know, together, the body of Christ, we look upon and see, wow, we see Jesus. And it's a lovely, lovely picture. And, um, and so Paul is, you know, just encouraging them in that. Uh, so, to conclude, um, if we want the world to see Jesus, he has chosen the church to represent him. And um, abiding in Christ means that the Holy Spirit grows in us and that, and that the fruitfulness of Christ comes through us.
the key um, to all of what Paul is speaking about is that all of this comes through Christ. That when he when he refers back to crucifying the flesh, um, it's so that Christ can shine. He's saying it's not just it's not just doing it for a you know for for a works based thing. But he's saying you know what there's this war going on. Recognize it. Submit to God. Resist. Resist the sin, but so that all of this fruit can come, because it's actually not about you. It's about the world needs to see Jesus, and that's why he's so passionate when he talks to his church. He's like, look at what you're doing. You're going into the flesh again, and actually Jesus wants to use you to shine. And you can't have the fruits without being joined to the vine. That's what Jesus says. Um, so in the coming weeks, we're going to talk a bit more. I won't put that back. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk a bit more specifically about the fruits. I wanted to give a bit more of an introduction about what's going on here with the dynamic and the, and the fruits of the Spirit. Um, but just to finish on, um, the first three, um, Paul lists love, joy and peace. Um, they're all... Uh, a lot of commentators have recognised that in that list, the first three kind of are, are in terms of our relationship towards God. The second are in terms of our patience and long-suffering is towards how we should act to each other. And the third three are kind of more internal. We, we'll look at that in the coming weeks, I'm sure. But these first three, love, joy and peace, are really the fruits of knowing God, I think. And they're, they're really lovely just to stop and to end on and just to, to hold as we go into a time of worship to think, do you know what? Out of a place of being united with Christ, of being um, reconciled with God, these first three really do capture the privilege of being a Christian. And um, first, love. Knowing God, God is love. And knowing that you are loved and that, you know, there's something wonderful. I remember when I first came to know God, just suddenly thinking, wow, I've, I've, I was made to love God and that's... That's what, I'm, that's what this is all about. I'm, I'm made by God to image him in the earth and to love him with all my heart, soul, body and mind. And if I can do that, then I've, I've succeeded. I've achieved if I can love God with all that I am. And um, secondly, there's a tremendous joy in knowing God and being reconciled to God, in knowing Jesus, in knowing that it's a personal relationship, that there's a Holy Spirit who can help and guide and strengthen you. Um, there's incredible joy in that. Um, and lastly, being at peace with God. Um, one of the wonderful fruits of knowing Jesus is that we know that we can come into the presence of God because of Jesus, the one who fulfilled all of the law and the one who died for our sins, knowing that we can come face to face with the living God and really, um, through the union in Christ, come before him and enjoy him and love him. Um, and if you're here today thinking, well, I recognise there's a lack of real sense of love or passion for God or a real sense of if you don't even know God then or if you think well my life's pretty joyless or I I don't enjoy a sense of peace then come to the vine for these things because these things come out of knowing Jesus um, and it's a promise we don't seek him for these things but as a result of knowing Jesus these things come Um, just to finish on if we walk by the Spirit, then we shall not gratify the desires of the flesh. We shall still experience them, but we shall not indulge them. On the contrary, we shall bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Paul is urging them to do, to recognise this battle, to say, do you know what? There's, there's, there's a higher calling on you as a Christian. 
recognise that Jesus has set you free, your call to freedom, to love one another, to love God with all that you can, and to, and to see the fruits of the Spirit come about in your life. Uh, so I'm going to pray. If the band want to come up, please. That'd be cool. Jesus, I thank you that knowing you is the most wonderful thing. I thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to help us, to come and um, transform us into your likeness. Jesus, I thank you that your intention for us is to reveal your glory to the earth, for people to look upon this church and our relationships and our friendships and say, wow, look how beautiful Jesus is. And that instead of giving in to our flesh and the old self. You've called us to look to you, Jesus. You've called us to follow you. You've called us to walk by your Spirit. And I pray you'd help me, everyone here, to know what that truly is, to be able to walk with you, to be able to, at the beginning of our weeks, just set our faces towards you, Jesus, and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to choose to follow you. And Holy Spirit, we're going to ask you to help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I pray you would help us to increasingly look like you, Jesus. I thank you that through your life and death and resurrection we have eternity with you. I thank you that we have the opportunity of coming before the Father right now, that we have the privilege of walking into your throne room and enjoying being loved, enjoying loving you. We have the privilege of being filled with your joy. We have peace with you, God. We can experience peace and we can come before you. And so I pray um, in the time that we've got remaining that, Holy Spirit, you would just come and fall, that um, for those that don't know what it is to have a, a real relationship with you, Holy Spirit, I pray you would come and meet with people in a very tangible way. I pray that you would help show them how to walk with you, how much you really want to be involved in our lives for your glory, Lord. I thank you that you are very purposeful in wanting to be involved in wherever we find ourselves in the week. And I pray this week that people would just just invite you in more and more, that we would stop and ask you to come join us in our workplaces, come join us as we go about our day, and not to just keep our heads down and forget you, Jesus. Forgive us for doing that. I pray that we would increasingly be walking in step with you, like Paul's described, that we'd be keeping our eyes out for where you're going, Holy Spirit, and following you. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to a gospel of grace, that we are saved by faith in you, Jesus Christ, and nothing in nothing that we can do. And yet I thank you that you've called us to engage with these truths, to hold on to them for dear life, to stand on them as firm foundations and as rocks, and to orient our lives around these truths because of what you've done. So we thank you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and help us now to enter into your presence, to lift up our heads, to be filled with thanksgiving and praise because you are the one who brings life and sustains us and keeps us. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.